Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that actually doesn't own any buffalo plaid clothing. I'm your host, Amanda. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation with Katie and Maggie, the two sisters and best friends behind fully sustainable hat brand, Salt Hats. We met through the magic of Instagram, and when I saw that Katie and Maggie had started their own clothing line in high school, which they sold via a zine slash catalog, I knew I wanted to have them on the show. It ended up becoming almost three hours of conversation. Basically, what was originally intended as a conversation picking apart the signs that a brand is fast fashion, well, it turned into so much more. So yes, we will be discussing that a bit in this episode, but most of that topic will happen in the next episode. Today, we'll hear about how and why Katie and Maggie started their own brand as teens and how and why they started a fully sustainable hat line as adults. And they will share a history lesson about Paisley and Buffalo plaid. And then I'll share a little bit about the development of fast fashion. So basically, this might be the most educational episode of Clothes Horse yet. Before we jump into the episode, and I'm warning you, this is a long one. I wanted to talk about something ripped from the headlines, COVID-19 and its impact on retail workers, specifically the safety issues retail workers are experiencing in the wake of the pandemic. A few days ago, I learned that nearly 20,000 Amazon and Whole Foods employees have tested positive for the coronavirus. And Reddit, social media, even my Instagram DMs have been full of stories of grocery store chains, clothing stores, and major retailers that are experiencing sort of these like top secret surges in COVID cases. A recurring theme is that employees are not allowed to tell other employees about their status. Of course, it somehow always comes out, right? Fueling even more distrust and anxiety for the team. The New York Times featured a story, I want to say it was like last week, about how terribly REI, who I generally think of as a pretty decent company, basically REI was handling positive cases by silencing employees, among other things. Employers defend these workplace gag rules by saying they protect healthcare privacy, which I get kinda, but it seems like it's more about preventing the news from getting to customers than protecting the workers. And like I said, it's pretty widespread. Workers from major players like McDonald's, Amazon, and Target have come forward to say that they were also forbidden from sharing their status with coworkers. At a CVS in Georgia, after a pharmacy employee came down with COVID-19, the district leader instructed employees to like not tell patients that their medications had been filled by someone who tested positive for the virus. So they were looking at multiple issues, right? Like also we're looking at endangering the customers. Are you familiar with OSHA? It's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They basically keep our workplaces safe and technically you can file a claim with them when you feel as if your workplace is unsafe. And supposedly you can do that in the era of COVID, but it's kind of complicated. It would seem like precautions protecting COVID would fall under their jurisdiction, right? Because they're defining all of the other workplace safety policies. Well, it's like yes and no. Basically, OSHA has been falling short in terms of creating protocols to protect workers from COVID. In fact, 
On September 14th, the New York Times editorial board said that such emergency rules could have prevented, quote, many needless deaths in warehouses, grocery stores, and meatpacking plants. Meanwhile, OSHA is saying, well, number one, employers can tell you to keep your COVID status a secret from your coworkers. And number two, employers should basically on the honor system, work with their state and local authorities to develop protocols for contact tracing. And for everything else, as in the best practices to keep the workers safe while they're actually at work, they should just sort of establish some best practices to protect the workers, you know, on their own. Because there's no concrete rules around it. Just like, hey, do your best, all right? This is the honor system. I'm sure you'll nail this. And listen, as a customer... The store has done so much to protect you, but the employees, well, it kind of varies. For example, even if a company has a rule that only one person can use a break room at a time, which is pretty standard right now, if one person leaves and another person enters immediately, chances are that the previous occupant's aerosol, which is potentially infected, is still in the air. And there have been a lot of complaints about lack of cleaning protocols in employee restrooms, which... Toilet flushing is a really easy way to transmit COVID-19. And yes, customers are technically required to wear masks in stores in most parts of the country, but retailers are doing very little to enforce that because they don't want to lose their customers. And this is something I'm hearing from a lot of you listeners who work in retail. Employees are generally allowed to ask nicely one time, and then they have to let it go. On my recent trip to Target, I saw half a dozen people without masks, and most of them, this was just blowing my mind, were just walking around talking on their phones like it was a totally normal time in the world. My daughter works at Rite Aid, and she's regularly receiving death threats and other terrible threats when she asks a customer to wear a mask. And once again, there's nothing she can do. I cannot say this enough. Wear a mask. Seriously, if you refuse to wear a mask in a store, please stop listening to the podcast right now. If you have health issues that prevent you from wearing one, then please get someone else to do your shopping. This is about protecting everyone around you and yourself. And no matter what our president says, COVID is a really big deal. I had it this year. I was sick for months. It turned into crazy inflammation in my joints. There were times where I thought I was going to die because my heart was racing. I was in so much pain. I had a lot of neurological issues. It's no joke, okay? So anyway, let's say you do get sick. Why not just sue the employer or store that, you know, you are pretty sure got you sick? Well, like everything we talk about here on the pod, it's complicated. Both shoppers and employees have very little legal recourse in terms of coronavirus-related negligence cases. It's pretty much impossible to prove that you 100% without a doubt got COVID from one particular place if you go multiple places in a given period. So the burden of proof is challenging, even if it seems fairly solid from like a circumstantial evidence standpoint. You want to hear something crazy? (laughs) The Sacramento Bee reported that local businesses have begun private investigations to prove that sick employees actually contracted the virus outside of work instead of at work because California passed a law classifying COVID-19 as a workers' compensation injury, which is rad. But of course, businesses don't want to pay. They don't want to cover 
the paid time off and the treatment for it. California law puts the burden of proof that a frontline worker didn't contract COVID-19 on the employers rather than on the worker. So once again, it allows affected employees more access to workers' compensation. And that gets expensive when we're talking about treatment, pay time off. You know, some of these illnesses can go on for a really long time. We've heard all about these long haulers. Employers don't want to pay for their employees to get months of treatment, maybe need physical therapy, respiratory therapy, all kinds of things, right? I'm not saying that's okay, but that's why they're trying so hard to get out of it. Furthermore, more and more retailers have been asking workers, especially those that have been furloughed and are now coming back to work, to sign arbitration agreements in order to start working again. Basically, the options are sign the agreement and have a job or don't sign it and now also be ineligible for unemployment insurance because that's considered a voluntary resignation. I read the saddest article about 60-year-old women being forced to sign these in order to come back to work at the container store. And some of them were like, okay, well, I desperately need this money, but myself or my husband are at risk of you know complications from the virus. So I just don't know what to do. It's like pay my rent and risk my life or stay home and soon be homeless. This is the world we're living in right now. I always had a weird feeling about the container store and now I know I was right. Don't go to the container store. So what's the big deal about this? I mean, beyond 60-year-old women being forced to choose between their health or their home. Well, when workers sign arbitration agreements, they agree not to take common workplace claims like wage theft or discrimination to court. Instead, they have to go before an arbitrator, which for the employer tends to hold certain advantages. Many of these agreements, including the container stores, prevents workers from joining in class action lawsuits, which reduces the collective power they could wield if they banded together. And like, for example, one thing you could sue about on a class action suit as a group of employees would be your company not putting the right precautions in place to protect you from COVID-19 and some of you getting sick or dying. So they couldn't sue the company for any COVID-related health issues. Meanwhile, Republicans are pushing for legislation that would protect all employers from liability related to workplace-related COVID infections. That's a really scary thing. Now, this is a great time for employers to have the upper hand. There are very few jobs and many, many unemployed people. It's easy to strong arm an employee into taking a pay cut, less hours, taking on more responsibility with no compensation, or in this case, signing away their legal rights. So employees are more vulnerable than ever. It's sort of like a perfect storm here because we're looking at employees being very vulnerable because they need any job they can get right now, right? And so employers have such an upper hand that they don't have to protect the employees from coronavirus. Like they don't have to put in any sort of policies and protections because one, they may be released from liability here. And two, OSHA is not putting any rules in place that they must follow. A recurring theme on this podcast is that retailers and brands answer to only two things, the law and sales numbers. 
They aren't going to protect workers because it's the right thing to do. They need legal pressure to protect their workers. Like OSHA needs to step in and be like, these are the rules. If you don't follow them, we're going to find the hell out of you. Or, and or I should say, employees can sue the shit out of you, right? (laughs) There has to be something there. Unfortunately, there are no numbers available for the number of retail workers that have contracted COVID-19 because, you know, this is all being kept under such wraps. But you can assume that there are many sick workers out there. We know that there are a lot of retail workers in the United States, and there have been more than 7 million total cases in the U.S. If you do the math there, we're looking at a lot of retail workers infected. We will only know how bad it is for employees if they are able to speak up about it. And unfortunately, the fear of losing their jobs will prevent that from happening. So what can you do? Well, ask retailers about the protections they have in place for workers. Social media is a great outlet for that. Wear a damn mask when you go shopping. Seriously, guys, wear a mask and over your nose. Lots of stuff comes out of your nose, too. Encourage others to wear a mask. I think there's something to say about like peer slash societal pressure when we are looking at something like mask wearing. I think about it a lot in Portland where like if you littered, you'd probably be chased out of town. And so you don't see a lot of litter. That's an example to me that I think about all the time. Wash your hands before you go shopping. Once again, this is about protecting everyone else in the store, not just yourself. And then I would say wash your hands when you leave or use a hand sanitizer. We've literally got a huge bottle of hand sanitizer in our car that we use after every stop on a day of errands. And don't be an asshole when you go shopping, ever, really, but now more than ever. Treat their workers with respect because they are putting their lives on the line every day so that you can buy some dry shampoo and kombucha. And they're all making something in the neighborhood of minimum wage. Okay, let's get into the episode. I promise it'll be a lot more fun than this conversation. (laughs) Today we have two clothes horse first, which is one two guests at the same time, which has not happened before. And two, these two guests are sisters. (laughs) So it's a big day. It's a big day in close horse history. Do you two want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, Well, I'm Katie. This is Maggie. You You won't be able to tell us apart, so it doesn't matter that much anyway. (laughs) Um, You're not not twins, right? No, we're not twins. We're two years apart. This um, isn't like we also have twins today because that would be too much. No, you <laughs> you wouldn't be able to handle that. No, <laughs> no, we're we're two years apart. We grew up as best friends and we kind of just like followed each other around our whole lives. So, uh, and we have a younger sister as well. She'll be mad if we don't acknowledge yeah, it. So we're literally. we're the oldest two of three sisters, but we're not twins. Okay. Um, we are from a small town that's in Michigan. Um, it's a village actually, and that. Um, our family goes pretty far back there, but we have lived in Detroit for almost two decades now. We both own houses in Southwest Detroit. We moved here for school. We both went to art school. I dropped out. Maggie, I graduated. Not that it made a difference. No. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel as though it has made a difference? <laughs> no. No, I feel not in the slightest. Like we both, um, it didn't matter either way, really. We basically grew up with two parents that um, taught us what we essentially call a scavenging lifestyle. Our mom taught us how to thrift and garage sale. It was kind of 
like a curse if we paid full price for anything in our family. Mm -hmm. Our dad worked at a local university. I won't say their name, but big university in Michigan. He was a um, carpenter there for his entire adult life. And he actually built our house from blueprints that he made in high school. And he used scavenged materials from the universities that they were throwing out in the garbage. Well, and just weird, random things. Like they found an iron spiral staircase in a swamp. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we grew up kind of like in the middle of swamps. And they found um, um, a piece of property he actually just sold. He found a spiral staircase and put it in the house. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm worried that Dustin's going to hear this episode and now start hanging out in some swamps. (laughs) There's probably lots lots of good stuff. Actually, the swamp directly behind our house, um, our neighbors put like buses in it, cars. Yeah, weird stuff. All sorts of stuff. They also, the trim in the house is made from like the oak trees that were, uh, they had to take down to build the house. So that was kind of. Ah, that's that's cool. And it kind of speaks to what we both do with all of our work through our entire life. We kind of had that built in from our from our very beginning. But um, I spent a good 15 years in fast fashion. I worked 11 years at H&M. Basically, I started as a sales advisor and worked my way through visual merchandising up to store manager and ended up leaving that to manage the oldest hat retailer in the United States, like big time switch from fast fashion yeah. and opening stores across the country for this big, you know, fast fashion giant to working at a store that has nine employees and probably only needs like five or six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very special. <laughs> um, you want to go ahead with you, Megs? Well, I started sewing when I was like a really, really young kid, like five or six. I don't even really remember. That's always kind of informed my whole story, I guess. But when I was like 12 or 13, we started our line of like upcycled vintage textiles, basically. Yes. At the age of like 13. <laughs> yeah. What year was this? Because this is like very advanced. Um, it was probably what, 97, 96? No, 99, 2000. I mean, this is pretty oh, cutting like edge. Mystery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pre, it was pre-internet basically, mm-hmm. like pre, mm-hmm. um, you know, pre Etsy, pre yeah. We, I mean, we had like what dial-up internet and like no, <laughs> no understanding of how to sell something on the internet. Really, no or idea how to sell anything. Sell anything. anything. Yeah, like <laughs> we didn't know how to sell anything or buy anything. We basically um, got started because of zine culture. Yeah, uh, we were Riot Girls. We were members of Riot Girl Michigan. Yeah, um, and we got heavily into zines. I was I made quite a few zines through my life, which I will not say the name of because I don't, you know, wish to revisit that writing, but um, <laughs> very embarrassing. I was really into personal zines, but we were, um, you know, interested in Riot Girl and kind of like the political aspects of that. So what we kind of came up with was from our obsession with Delia's, um, we kind of grew out of that into like a zine version of Delia's. Yeah. So our our brand was called Former Child Stars. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, we always have a penchant for long names. And um, <laughs> it was basically a cut and paste zine where we shot the photos on film on a point and shoot camera, cut them out 
uh, pasted them on top of, they were illustrations from a technical scuba book that I had, you know, like everyone loved all those fifties illustrations. Mm-hmm. 50s, 50s illustrations. Still do. Still do. Yeah. I mean, they're great. And we, we pa- pasted the photos on top of those and then typed up all the information in our typewriter. And Maggie, you want to explain <laughs> what we actually made? Uh, well, I can't recall everything, but the the first thing that comes to mind are the, the underwear, t-shirt underwear from vintage t-shirts and also just vintage fabric. Like, like weird trimmings. random fabric. Like when I, when I was that age, for some reason, well, still, people would always be like, oh, you sew here. Do you want this like weird box of vintage fabric that's been in my garage for a hundred years. <laughs> and so that's like how, kind of how I started sewing was that people would give me like these weird vintage textiles. And then I was given like a weird vintage sewing machine and I got vintage uh, sewing books from the library. So that was like, it, I mean, it was just never going to be anything else. <laughs> it was always going to be vintage upcycled anything repurposed Mm -hmm. repurposed yeah we were I mean we were just talking about I I can't even imagine what would have been in a fabric store then yeah at the time you know in the like late 90s early 2000s Joanne fabrics would have been I think just all old lady prints oh for sure and And maybe some kids ones that are like licensed yeah yeah and like maybe like yeah like sports or something I don't even know I don't I, I actually my first job was at Joanne fabrics and I know that I had no interest in buying anything there I just um we would steal candy all the time. That's it. I mean, now Joanne is like 80% that weird fleece that like people make yeah. the weird tie blankets from. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. 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 Yeah. We it's, like, it's like <laughs> aisle after aisle of printed fleece and just like you can't buy fabric there. Period. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's anything else. Like, I mean, the fleece aside, everything is synthetic. Yeah. Yeah. And expensive for what it is. It's like yeah. Joanne is fast fashion of fabric. Yeah, and they, and they do do all the uh, 50% off coupons and all that mm-hmm, stuff. Too, mm-hmm. so. I think I just like blew my own mind. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all the evidence is there. We're going to talk about what makes fast fashion fast fashion today, like the symptoms. And now that I'm going through it in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, Joanne checks all the boxes. Oh yeah. And Michael's. Sure. Michael's yeah. too. Oh yeah, all of those. That whole like you go to the strip mall to buy your craft supplies kind of store. I mean, mm-hmm. it serves its purpose, I suppose, but it's more so, you know, hobby hobbyists who want police blankets that yeah. you tie together. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the only fabric that we had that would have fulfilled our needs at the time would have been vintage textiles from, you know, all of our, so many friends and family. Even when our grandma passed away recently, mm-hmm. our recent years, we inherited all of her weird fabric. Maggie made um, masks out of a lot of it. Cool. But... We also, you know, you've talked about it with other people before, came up in the golden age of thrift, where in the late mm. 90s, we had a Salvation Army that we would go to, and it looked like you entered the 70s when you walked into the store. It was an old, uh, I think we were thinking carpet store, that, you know, you walked in, Ooh. every single thing was from like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. It was like every dream piece that you ever wanted, and half of it we hated at the time. The other half we bought, and... um you know, what couldn't be worn as act in its actual state was cut up and made into something else. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of silk screening too. We, ha- we have some regrets. Yeah. Don't silk screen on vintage stuff. It's not cool. <laughs> uh, that wasn't, that was a thing though. Oh, yeah. Like I remember that. And that like late nineties, early aughts 
where people were just starting to begin this idea of like upcycling, it was always bad screen printing on really beautiful yeah. vintage clothes. It makes me so sad. For the most part, though, I think like <laughs> it was a good time to be experimental because there wasn't the internet. So you weren't influenced by, you know, so much. Yeah. And so, and, and a love of vintage kind of, uh, I think inspired a lot of people who were making hand making clothing at the time. Definitely. Definitely. Did you actually have customers for your catalog? Yeah. So we, so well, one of the, the biggest things that we did was I think for that line, we did the first, um, it was the Chicago urban craft fair, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Oh, the renegade craft fair. Yeah. It was the renegade. Oh yeah. Oh my God. That takes me back. Oh yeah. So that was probably like, I want to say 2001, 2002 ish. Mm-hmm. We sold more there. It was kind of like a weird thing with the with the zine as kids. Like we, you know, zines went through distros, which distros would then print um, like a a catalog. If you remember those, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh because yeah, Xerox definitely. Catalog. You would have to send. You'd send away like a couple bucks or like a self addressed stamped envelope, and you would get the distro catalog back yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and eventually pre-internet the, i don't think we got any mail orders yeah i think it was more so like handing it out kind of thing we put it around mm. um so we where we grew up was definitely the country and not the suburbs and so we would drive to towns that were good like 30 miles away to leave our catalogs places we weren't thinking about making money we just thought it was cool because we had such a you know we wanted to make cl- clothing and we had loved delia so much so it was kind of like our uh, growing out of that into something different, like what we thought was like DIY, like punk, mm-hmm. red girl, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so it was more so like to friends and and people in the area kind of thing. And then at that craft fair. And how long did you do it? You really only did that for a couple years, like end of, well, I guess it was a pretty long time, actually. It would have been maybe five or six years. Yeah. So we did that for a while. Wow. And it was kind of also, you know, we were just making things under an umbrella almost. We would work with our friends on projects. We would make all sorts of stuff. We did a lot of silk screening. We took, you know, we were the kids who, by the time we graduated high school, didn't have any more academic classes on our, our schedule. It was all art classes and the school mm-hmm. newspaper. Mm-hmm. And um, right after I graduated, I went to art school. Uh, Maggie would, you know, come out to Detroit to, to visit. And we ended up starting a different clothing line, which had another long name. It was called Heavy Metal Boyfriend. Um, and uh-huh. we did that, I think, longer than we did the first one. Oh, a lot longer. I mean, yeah. we essentially never officially gave it up, so maybe we're still doing it. I don't oh, know. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what was the difference with this new brand? Uh, <laughs> it was well, <laughs> well, it was the same concept, so it was all upcycled. But we had gotten really into, we had moved out of like the punk aesthetic into like rock and roll. So we were super into like ah. 70s rock and roll and recreating that type of fashion but like if you remember in 2005 ish on all the it was like um specific it's still going but it's a specific kind of almost like metalhead look and so we were doing a lot of leather we made leather witch hats we did leather vests mm. still did a ton of silk screen t-shirts but it was like the first in the past 20 years the first time that tie-dye had come back as like a huge trend in some circles mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I i'm remembering this time it's actually i felt like that era there were so many like really hot dudes all over the place 
<laughs> oh yeah, everyone had long yeah, hair. Yeah, it was, and it was a peak cool, time for hot dudes. Tight pants and boots and all that kind yeah, of. I mean, we yeah, we really haven't grown out of it, so I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm yeah, wearing a, <laughs> a repro biker T-shirt right now, so we haven't really gotten out of it. But that was kind of like the gist of our our next clothing line that mm-hmm. uh, we did for a long time. And I mean, there were a lot of people that did essentially the same thing. They were just a lot more successful. Yeah. <laughs> like we, we just really liked doing it. We did like some fashion shows, like local fashion shows. We did um, a lot of stuff on the internet and um, we still have some of the pieces. We sell them at uh, this really cool flea market that we do with our friends. I feel like that was more so just our lifestyle at the time. Like we were yeah. making things that either we wanted to see people wear, or we were making things that we just wanted to see. We rarely right. wear our own clothing. We wear the t-shirts, but we've never gotten past the idea that people have where they just want to see something made. And so they make it. We've never been great at marketing or lives. we were excellent uh, at, at, you know, all that stuff. But in our slow fashion lives, it was actually just a thing we wanted to do, you know? Right. Right. So what are the two of you working on now? Currently we have um, started a hat line that's I mean they're truly sustainable hats they're vintage hats that couldn't be um, restored to their original state we take them and turn them into blanks reblock them um, into a new shape and then we do a lot of dyeing and embroidery on the hats and so I am the store manager at a place called Henry the Hatter um, it's a 127 year old hat business uh, it's the oldest in America and so when I started to work there, I have two bosses who are, um, I mean, they just know everything. They know everything about hats, mm-hmm. you know, everything about the history and how they're, you know, like the historical, like people who've worn them, they've sold hats to, I mean, Hank too calls us to order hats. So, wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. they know, <laughs> they know like the specs, you know, they'll, they'll call Stetson with the specs. They can, they can kind of design these hats through companies and, um, I've learned a lot from them. So my direct boss, my general manager has been teaching me how to do all the hat repairs. So I've spent the past few years learning hat repairs, leather replacement, how to reblock a hat, which is to put the shape back into the hat, mm-hmm. um, how to clean them. And so we're one of the only places in the United States that does uh, pretty much what I'd call a full service uh, hat repair. And just from learning all of those processes, I started making my own hats. And as I'd wear them at work, people would ask, you know, oh, where's that one? Where's that on the shelf? And so we just kind of started it as a fun thing and it's taking off a lot more than we anticipated. Um, So that's Salt Hats is is the name of the hat company. It's at Salt Hats on Instagram. Thank you for doing that because I was going to make you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I finally remembered how to market something. (laughs) Yeah, and these hats are super fucking cool. Like, they're amazing. And everyone should see them. They're way cooler than any of the other hats out there right now. (laughs) Thank you. One thing that we really were interested in doing, um, like, if we were going to make a, you know, start another sort of repurposed brand, we were going to go full bore. So I do use a lot of fur felt. And while I'm not necessarily, um, you know, in in any way in support of the fur industry, Mm -hmm. there are so many hats in this world. I don't think people understand how many beautiful felts there are that, I mean, we have customers come into work and they don't want the hat anymore. They'll throw it in the garbage. And the whole, yeah. The whole point of buying a nice hat is that it can last you decades as long right. as you keep it up. Yeah. And so 
I, you know, I, I just can't see, see that happen anymore. All these felts can be completely reworked. For our leather bands, we use repurposed leather from the, it's like scraps from the auto industry. Wow. You know, we're in Detroit. And when the auto industry has these hides, some of the hides will um, have imperfections. So, you know, they're, they're going to make a seat out of this hide, but it has like a t- the tiniest hole or the dye wasn't even in one spot. And so they throw them away. God. And luckily we have a lot, we actually have a few brands in Detroit, in the city that are uh, using a lot of that leather. Mm-hmm. It feels like an unending amount of it in different colors. And so we use that as our hat bands. Every single thing that we use is either vintage or repurposed. So even the leathers that I would remove from a hat uh, to make it into like essentially a blank, like a blank piece of felt. Um, when I remove any of those pieces, I save the trimming and I repurpose it in some way. So I use the leather as a trim on the outside of the hat. So I do the embroidery on hats. And um, everything that I use, I generally find, you know, uh, vintage at the thrift store or something. I don't buy new wool um, or new embroidery floss. So all of that would have ended up in a landfill too. Um, mm-hmm, for sure. So that's that's been, you know, pretty important to me to do that part. Yeah, it's wow. really it's really um, overwhelming to think about how there are places like Joann's and Michael's where you can go buy these things new. And sometimes, yeah, you, you do need some new thread or you need some needles, but mm-hmm. there are so many trims and notions that just go to the thrift store or go right into the garbage um you know go yeah, to even estate sales things like that i mean it's crazy because a lot of the thrift stores have like an entire aisle of this stuff at this point like if you get into scrapbooking especially geez there is like oh, yeah. so, i'm so much <laughs> scrapbooking bullshit but tons and tons of yarn and fabric and always bags of embroidery floss like that's the first place yeah. you should look for these kinds of things for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially because you can find um, a lot of really great quality notions, you know, like things that were, mm-hmm. that are vintage generally were made better. Um, and so it's going to be a lot better than the garbage you'd buy at a cheap craft store. Yeah, totally. With your coupon. <laughs> yeah. With your off coupon. yeah. <laughs> the whole point of what we're trying to do is to really just, uh, be as sustainable as possible, um, especially because the, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to dog the hat industry because I work in it. It is actually slow fashion and a lot of mm-hmm. the practices are, um, you know, there's a lot of made in America companies are made in ethical factory um, hats that you can buy. And a lot of the practices mm-hmm. are actually pretty sustainable in terms of what, you know, in terms of what they're doing in the context of making a hat. But ultimately I, you know, for me personally, what I would like to do is repurpose the ridiculous amount of stuff that we have on this earth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's like even people who have like the best intentions often don't see that, like that whole picture, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I'm sure that all the people who are making the hats here are making a lot more money than they would overseas, but like, you know, then all the stuff is going in the trash. So yeah, that, that and also, you know, there is fur involved and there is leather involved. And so that's a whole that's a whole nother episode. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I agree. I mean, I learned like a year or two ago that a lot of like nice hats are made of fur and it blew my mind. And I think it's 
probably going to blow the minds of a lot of listeners because when you look at them, you can't tell their fur. Right. And then when you know that that's what they are and get up close, you're like, oh, I see it now. Right. That was mind blowing for me because I also, you know, I worked in the world of fast fashion where all of our hats, when hats were a trend, were felt and like shitty felt at that. Yeah. Or like a lot of them actually are um, poly. So they're plastic. Yeah. Like as, as good, good point. Good and, point. Yes, you're um, right. It's very rare that you're going to you're going to find a quality hat um, that is made from wool. And there's really only I would say a handful of brands that make quality wool hats. So you know if you buy a new hat and um, you don't want to support the fur industry, there's you know you want to research into what would be a quality hat because if you want something that's going to last, ultimately a fur felt hat lasts a lot longer. It's true. We have hats that come in from the 40s, the 30s that people have been passed down, you know, f- passed down in families, and people are getting them cleaned and reworked, and they're so easy to work on. It's um, kind of mind blowing that um, mm-hmm. of all the industries, the hat industry is one that's overlooked as like it's actually a pretty sustainable uh, industry, making really quality products if you go to the right place. But all the fast fashion retailers, you know, you want to talk about fit and and quality. Fast fashion, you cannot find a quality hat. Like stop <laughs> buying garbage hats. <laughs> Don't buy any more Forever no. Twenty One plastic hats. <laughs> right. I mean, well, they're gonna last you like a couple months at best they're going to lose their shape they're going to get really weird and pilly god forbid you get mm-hmm. them wet they oh, may yeah, bleed onto your face mm-hmm. if you get caught in the rain and then they, they change to the weirdest shapes i mean if you look at yeah. how they wear people you know i see a lot of different quality of hats at my work and um when you see when you see a quality hat that's 40 years old that's held its shape that just you know still looks beautiful the lines are timeless and then you mm-hmm. people will bring in these hats it's kind of like this, um, I feel like it's a more recent phenomenon, but we seem to be getting a lot of hats from Amazon. And Really? Yeah. So <laughs> if you go on Amazon, I mean, you can scroll through pages of hats that are like 9 to $14. And, you know, I mean, no one should be putting that on their head. Your head is, no. your skin is very absorbent on your face. You don't want whatever, whatever material Agreed. that is. That's a very valid point. Yeah. And with sweat, <laughs> hats are a very personal thing. It's almost like, you know, you don't really, you can borrow your friend's clothing because they can wash it. You're not really putting on someone else's hat very often because it has their smell. It has their, mm-hmm. uh, their oils in it. It's like wearing someone's shoes. And so um, your body gets real up close and personal. You don't want to be wearing like gross plastics in your underwear. You don't want to be wearing gross plastics on your head or on your feet. Yeah. <laughs> Hats have been uh, kind of like the the design is in straw and in felt has been kind of perfected over thousands of years to the point where we don't need to mess with it. We don't need any new materials. Let's stick with what works. So today we're going to talk about something that it seems like we talk about all the time on this podcast, which is fast fashion. But one thing we haven't really done on Close Horse before is talk about like what really is fast fashion? Because I think we all have an idea that like, yeah, well, it's Zara and it's Forever 21, but it's so much more complicated than that. So I thought I would start with some history of how we came to the point where we are now. <laughs> and I know uh, that the two of you have some some history to share with us too. So <laughs> I'm excited because I don't know what it is, but I'm ex- so I'm excited to hear it. I'm in suspense too. So clothes shopping used to be an occasional thing, like something you might do for a special occasion, like a big party or prom. You know, I remember as a kid, like 
back to school shopping. It was like one day only. And like you had to get everything you were going to get for school. And that was it. There were no new clothes again until maybe Christmas. You know, it's kind of like the inverse would happen with summer clothes. It's not something we would do every week or even every day. But this changed about 20 years ago. So like 2000 when trends suddenly like really sped up and each one had a shorter and shorter life cycle. And you can kind of look back on time and sort of see that like the seventies had a really definitive style. The eighties had a really definitive style. Even the nineties did. But when you get into the aughts, like if you were going to make a list of all the trends that happened, it would be pages and pages. It would be like (laughs) juicy tracksuits and pulling up your thong too far and graphic tees and, Von Dutch hats. And I mean, I could like go on and on. I know some of those were all the same person wearing them, but (laughs) it's just where my mind went. (laughs) So at the same time, clothes became cheaper and shopping became a hobby. Like literally I would see people on OkCupid listing like shopping as one of their interests or hobbies, which is so gross in retrospect, but at the time you'd be like, Oh, me too. I like, you know, or whatever you did on OkCupid when you liked someone, I can't remember. So before the 1800s, fashion was about as slow as you can get it. Like not only would you have to make your own clothes, you would also have to create the materials that they were made of from thread to fabric, to leather, to yarn, everything. And the first sewing machine was invented in 1790 by an English inventor named Thomas Saint. But it turned out that he was really bad at advertising and marketing. So it didn't really cash on. I'm sure he was mad about this for a really long time because, I mean, I guess people didn't live to be that old back then. But in 1846, so like, what was that? 56 years later, a guy named Elias Howe patented the first sewing machine and it really took off. But it's important noting that in America, a little bit earlier, Walter Hunt came up with a backstitching sewing machine in the early 1830s, but he was so afraid that it would result in the massive unemployment of seamstresses, he declined to patent it. He was like, this is going to be too bad for society. So in a weird way, he was kind of <laughs> like a hero. He also invented the safety pen. So this guy, Walter Hunt, is really great, he's really actually. <laughs> he's done He's done a lot for humanity, you know? So anyway, the sewing machine, it made clothes easier and quicker to make. I mean, imagine hand sewing a whole dress. People used to do that. So dressmaking shops popped up all over the place, and they would offer reasonably priced and accessible clothing to middle-class people. This is actually when sweatshops began to pop up because these dressmakers tended to employ a bunch of sewers. They all worked in one room in the back of the shop. There might not be any windows. There might not be any ventilation. Everybody was sewing nonstop. By the 60s and 70s, young people began to sort of create and support new fashion trends. And that's because it was the first time teenagers had disposable income. Prior to the 60s, most teens with after-school jobs had to actually give their money that they made their wages to the household. But now they could keep it. So they shopped like all the time. They bought clothes, records, comics, ice cream sundaes probably. And the advertising industry began to realize that this demographic was and still is a cash cow. So the fashion industry sort of split into two major lanes at this time. And one was like the high fashion. So that's like the expensive luxury, the sort of brands that show at New York Fashion Week. And then the high street, which is the more mass, more affordable stuff. But even still, like the cheaper stuff wasn't that cheap. People weren't buying new clothes every week, probably not even every month. I mean, I definitely 
knew some girls in middle school whose parents would buy them like anything they wanted anytime. And they could go to Fashion Bug and get like a whole bag of clothes every week. But that was kind of unusual. And they were rich because their parents owned like an extermination company or something. (laughs) In the late 90s and early aughts, fast fashion began to grow and grow. And the 2008 financial crisis gave it the boost it needed because clothes got cheaper and cheaper. The rise of the internet and e-commerce meant that people wanted trends faster and faster, and brands needed to launch as much stuff as possible in order to keep the customers interested. Brick-and-mortar stores were super afraid of losing business to the internet, so they stuffed more and more product into their spaces and created more and more hot deals. And that's kind of where we are now. So I know that you two have a story from the 1700s to tell me. <laughs> yeah, so this is, well, it kind of um, covers a, a long time period. But the other night we okay. were chatting about uh, the name Paisley, like for humans. <laughs> I guess potentially for animals as well, but we were mainly talking about it for humans. <laughs> and so before we launch into this too, um, this whole history lesson, I think it's important to know that Maggie's background, um, well, do you want to talk about your background for yourself? I went to school for textile, textiles, what was um, crafts. So like, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. glass, wood, metal, and fibers. So a lot of what we did was focus on the history of fibers in a really not great way. One of the, the things they would have us do a lot was go to the library and find like a book on like Guatemala or like you know, textiles from like ancient Middle East or whatever. Mm. And then like the motif and then like manipulate it to make a new pattern out of it, which you could call it inspiration. You could call it theft, I suppose, depending on, on how far you take it, you know? And so, I mean, that was specifically um, kind of the backbone of what they taught in terms of like design. So I had a teacher in another another class like unrelated to crafts who was kind of like, listen, I know they tell you to do that, but that's not like, that's not okay. Yeah. It is definitely not okay. You say his words were basically, you can't understand what it's like to have your culture taken. And yeah. Well, and he said like, you can't have a true understanding of what that means to that culture. Right. Especially because a lot of motifs or a lot of patterns, a lot of prints, those sort of things, you know, are, are ancient or at least longstanding and they usually have some sort of cultural significance or religious significance. And so even when you look, um, I know that you had touched on the whole like tribal print trend through the history of, you know, the history of fashion, different prints have come in and out. And so you see things like quote unquote tribal or African prints, which are obviously manipulated, um, by some sort of designer, something like a Thunderbird motif stolen from indigenous mm-hmm. people. You see um, all sorts of these patterns that definitely the person who's making them is probably, as we've learned from listening to many designers, on some sort of time crunch or told to do it mm-hmm. regardless. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's kind of um, taking a, a motif and manipulating it into a print. And so as we're, we're talking about Paisley, and kind of like, what what is the history of Paisley? Because ultimately, every conversation we have turns into some sort of deep dive on... Well, as a, as a person's name, we said, what does Paisley mean? Mm-hmm. And so we looked it up, and it means, well, according to whatever the first thing I pulled up was, it 
church. <laughs> really? We were like, what? Yeah, okay, okay, it's weird. But then, I mean, so, you know, if you have like um, an understanding that language morphs over time, and so Paisley actually comes from two different places, but the name Paisley would be uh, derived from Scottish Gaelic. And so it it basically means church or um, wood, like wood, like a wooded area or a pasture, which actually makes sense in the context of more ancient people or even more in Western history worship was tied into like the land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're wondering what what Scotland has to do with anything, or <laughs> did you say Scotland? You just said Gaelic. Yeah, it's a little Scottish uh, Gaelic. Yeah. So Paisley is a town in Scotland. Okay. Had no idea. And I had <laughs> I had originally understood that Paisley was more of an Indian design. Yeah, but me too. Me too. Okay. Well so apparently it is, but okay. it was kind of taken uh what would you you cover this part? sure okay so basically we're about to take you on a journey here where we call out buffalo plant that's that's our end result here um <laughs> it's all started with us talking about paisley because paisley was a town uh, in scotland that had a had a different variation on the spelling that we know today because it would have been scottish gaelic but basically it started as an abbey and became a town um, it was actually like a really important part of the world during the Industrial Revolution. Um, it became the center for handloom weaving of linen. Mm. So uh, they also produced, they produced thread as well. So they kind of, you know, the Industrial Revolution could kind of like what you were just touching on with sewing machines. That was the start of mechanization of a lot of processes that hadn't previously been mechanized. And so they were a really, a really hot uh, center for that in the Western world. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to find the exact tie-in with the print Paisley in Scotland, other than uh, Maggie is going to read something that we found interesting. It sums it up better than we could. It's okay. from um, the Paisley Foundation, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Paisley pattern can be traced back to the Indo-European cultures of 2000 and more years ago. In Britain, the pattern is represented in Celtic art, which died out in Europe under the influence of the Roman Empire. However, in India, the motif continued to flourish in many different art forms. It was first used on shawls in Kashmir, and examples of this work were brought back to Britain by the East India Company in the mid-18th century. So, shawls quickly became the vogue, but they were in short supply and enormously expensive. As a result, they were imitated by British textile manufacturers who sold them for a tenth of the price. The Indian motif itself was reinterpreted and developed to conform to European taste. The impact was dramatic. Imitation Indian shawls were so popular that the weaving centers in Edinburgh, Norwich, and Paisley were swamped with orders. For 70 years, the patterned shawls remained fashionable, and the term Paisley became renowned throughout the world. And so they essentially, um, you know, Perhaps there was some tie-in with early Celtic culture, but the paisley that they were producing in their mills um, was a woven textile that that used the paisley motif that we see. You know, you can go buy a paisley tunic at H&M right now in 15 different colors. Um, so the paisley that mm-hmm, we know mm-hmm. kind of got appropriated by, by the paisley of Scotland. And I think um, when we were digging into this just randomly it was interesting to see that that was kind of one of the first instances I've ever heard of for fast fashion so you know they basically (laughs) brought 
uh, like brought this item over that was so highly coveted and they couldn't produce it fast enough. So they made a cheaper version for a tenth of the price. Mm -hmm. And then they named it after themselves. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Classic. Totally classic. So fast fashion, it's, it's always been a part of being a human, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so this, um, so in Paisley, because it was such a an important part of the Industrial Revolution, they, um, it's important to note that in 1820 there was a radical uprising of the millworkers, which were the highly skilled weavers that were um, largely women and children. So you know, on theme as well, um, who had immigrated mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the Highlands because of this need for these paisley shawls. I think the queen had worn one and everyone went, you know, went crazy for it and they needed as many paisley shawls as they could get. So they they had women and children come and um, they became the, the skilled workers. Um, but with the death of the trend of the shawls, so yes, it was a 70 year trend, but even back then trends died a horrible quick death. So with the death of the trend of shawls, it killed the textile industry in Paisley, um, which then collapsed. And the there was a huge political uprising. And the, the end result of that was that the mill owners retained political control of the town of Paisley. So oh. it's... Well, that's not very inspiring. <laughs> I know. It's like, dude, we're really just repeating the same thing, oh, the same things over and over. I, you know... So this made us ask, <laughs> what <laughs> what else has been stolen? And I said, well, what about plaid? <laughs> yeah, you know, we're talking about Scotland. Oh, well, what? Where does plaid yeah. come from? So, uh-huh. um, diving into the Scottish textile history brought up the fact that, that was it was a very surprising fact to us, considering her husband and my partner are. Uh, both Scottish descent. They're both of Scottish descent. Okay. Like, you know, occasionally we'll go to like these Scottish festivals where you see tartans and you know everyone has, like, if you have any familiarity with um, <laughs> people of Scottish or Irish descent, they have a lot of pride in their family plaid or, um, you know, it's the plaid is different than a tartan, but basically they're, they're family tartan. And so guess what? Scottish tartans are not an ancient tradition among clans, as implied. Um, as we oh my god so, this goes so deep <laughs> right, so basically they are what is called an invented tradition this is a new term to us but um what? i think that, that term <laughs> when you hear it is like oh welcome to america you know? yeah. i mean it's it's such a burn yeah, like, <laughs> it's such a burn and so like originally um tartans it's not a print. So plaid wasn't a print. It was a tart. The tartans were woven um, and the colors were woven together to create what we know as like a plaid print now. Um, And they originated around the 16th century as weavers would utilize local plants to create different colored plaids. So they would dye the actual fibers, the colors and weave them together, which would create the tartan or uh, what we know as a plaid. Um, Tartans didn't become uniform and affiliated with certain clans or family names until the late 1700s or the early 1800s. So Tartan... Really? Yeah. So That's like recent, you know? You're only going back a few generations there. Um, That blew my mind because I just, I guess it's, you know, we're nerds. We like to look into everything, but that one really went over my head because it does, with the Highland dress, look as if it is some sort of ancient tradition. Um, but it's not. So, you know, tartans are actually younger than the United States of America. So, well, tartan goes back farther, but what having a tartan specific to your clan or your family would be family name, your family name would be relatively new. 
And so, of course, you know, if you want to know the whole history, because why wouldn't we do that? Um, yeah. So tartan is essentially the dress of the Highland rebels. Uh, so in Scotland, and it was banned from 1746 to 1782. Um, so what had happened with, um, with that is that this man named um, Bonnie Prince Charles, he came to Scotland. He was actually Roman, so he wasn't Scottish, but he came to Scotland to create a Scottish army to invade England and usurp the Protestant king to restore Catholic rule. So he basically came from Rome to Scotland to put together an army of people who had nothing to do with any of you know his mission um, to mm-hmm. fight to restore Catholic rule to Britain. So not even necessarily their, ter- you know, the, the area that they were in. Um, and what he did is he used tartan to blend in with the locals. So to kind of cover up the fact that he was Roman, just like, you know, right. So he wanted to, he own <laughs> locals only, I guess. <laughs> He basically came to trick the Highland people into building an an army for him to usurp the British king so Catholics could rule the Protestants. So just this bullshit fucked up story where this man came Uh, from God, you know, to restore whatever order he deemed appropriate for the people. So basically there were, you know, for years, these bloody battles where, Uh, those armies that he had put together fought all wearing the Highland dress. So they wore those tartans. um, And originally Mm -hmm. what they had worn were a mix of tartans. So like back in history, um, depending on the region that you came from, the colors would vary on your tartan. But in battle, they would have worn a different uh, piece on the top than a different color on the bottom kind of thing. So there was no loyalty to any specific pattern. Um, when he left defeated after many bloody battles, Tartan was banned. So that was the big ban that they had. <laughs> and it basically retained a cult status during those years. And Scottish families decided they wanted their own differentiated Tartan. So it was kind of like a, like a underground cool, like, oh, let's, let's get these Tartans, uh, kind of divvied <laughs> up. And also I think what was interesting too, just as, you know, you think about, about, the history of it. So it was these woven fabrics, especially that um, were native to these specific regions. And when it became a thing for the differentiated tartans for families or clans, um, they mm-hmm. made those tartans on machines. So it switched entirely from this beautiful handcrafted item where the colors were woven in into a pattern into basically a machine made what we call plaid today, which was actually also taken from Scottish Gaelic. So it's really younger than the United States of America. It's really this invented tradition. And guess what one of the the major tartans was, the invented tradition tartans? I don't know. Buffalo plaid. Ah, classic. Oh, yeah. So uh, the way that we... That we all view buffalo plaid now. It's like, oh, you're gonna get your family photos taken. Like it's so uh-huh. American. You go to <laughs> you go to Target and you buy like a matching red and black. So, so basically, if if anyone isn't familiar with buffalo plaid, it is that type of plaid that is a large block of red and black. Well, well it can be white, other colors, but well, where it came from, it would have been red, yeah. and black. It was actually the tartan of rob roy mcgregor so i don't know if anyone remembers like that 90s movie <laughs> isn't there a drink called a rob roy yes there's also a cocktail called a rob roy yeah, yeah he, is, 
Scottish Robin Hood. So like he was this huge folklore legend. Um, I think in some circles he's bigger than maybe in our circle, but he was a, you know, he's a big folklore legend. He was essentially mm-hmm. their, basically their Robin Hood. Well, I mean, he has his own drink, you know? Yeah. So he was pretty important. Pretty important to history. <laughs> <laughs> so a descendant of his, uh, whose name was Jock McCluskey, or they, they called him Big Jock. Big Jock. Oh, man, I don't like this at all. <laughs> yeah, all right. you, can, you can already tell, right? It's yeah, going old Big here. Jock. <laughs> Big Jock. And so, I mean, he basically lived up to his name, which would be way cooler if he was like a rapper or something. Yeah. But he had come over as a colonizer from Scotland to Canada. to Canada. So his family came to Canada. He was like a very direct descendant from Rob Roy, and their family, Tartan, was... Buffalo plaid. Um, he, let's see, I wrote, I wrote down some notes on here and how he was described because if you, you know, when you read history, you have to always look at the subcontext and kind of understand what they're really saying. So big Jack was a figure described as weird and revered and a sometimes lawman. Oh, sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a nightmare from hell basically. <laughs> Um, so he was ironically a part of the illegal and unethical seizure let me say that again he was part uh, he was ironically a part of the illegal and unethical seizure and destruction of native lands so he was originally a buffalo hunter Mm -hmm. um, and if anyone is familiar with like the instance the huge instance of buffalo genocide in North America um, that alone should be enough to hate him (laughs) Uh, you know, buffalo, buffalo were hunted nearly into extinction and um, from millions of buffalo down to about 300, I believe, before um, I think it was Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone, yeah, Yellowstone. kind of like brought them back. But I think even today there's only 200,000. Oh, OK. She knows how many buffalo there are. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie knows I every buffalo. Really concerned. <laughs> she knows all the buffalo. But I mean, that that alone is super fucked up. And so that was what he had originally come here as. Um, and so... What he ended up uh, becoming was sort of like a middleman be- between the native people and specifically the Sioux and the Cheyenne mm-hmm. people and like the white colonizers. So the people that came and decided to, because of, you know, another another mission from God, manifest destiny, decided to take over the land. Um, he kind of negotiated between the tribes and um the colonizers and the thing that he used that was a major trade tool and apparently a huge hit not surprising because it's still a big hit today buffalo plan. <laughs> oh, bigger than ever everyone's always loved a damn buffalo plan that's for yeah sure. so basically he used um his family tartan <laughs> buffalo plaid uh in the form of wool blankets and i mean we all know how that didn't fare well here but with blankets and he traded them for buffalo pelts and so um we have this little from the tartan's authority in our research we found this um description of his you know i feel like this kind of sums up without any subcontext it's just right all there for you according to mccluskey's great nephew gregor mccluskey sue and cheyenne warriors were in awe of its color none had seen such a deep rich red they believed its intense, intensely rich hue of red to be a sorcerer's hex, a dye distilled from the spirit, blood, and ghostly souls of McCluskey's prey and enemies, a belief that Big Jock did little to correct. Worn in battle and draped across their war ponies, it was prized as a good luck talisman and revered as a spirit guardian that would deliver immortality even in the face of death itself. 
So basically he like lied to them and let them think that the tartan was dyed with blood, with human blood. Of course he did. So, I mean, old big big jack is buffalo plaid. Then Uh, comes Woolrich. Yeah. So then you think the appropriation is over. You think in this line of like weird uh, appropriation that you're done. But no, if you look, (laughs) you want to talk about Woolrich? Uh, Well, Woolrich uh, claims to be the first uh, purveyor of buffalo plaid. And I believe it's trademark. Trademark, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. According to them, they first invented it in the 1850s. Um, We've got like a, this like faux mythology about the inventor owning a uh, herd of buffalo. That's how they (sighs) came up with the name. They didn't even try hard to come up with it. They said, eh, the designer owns the buffalo. So that's why he named it that. Stop. And then they basically claimed it as their own. And now we see it, you know, we saw it on back then. It was, you know, Paul Bunyan's shirt and Tom in the Western movies. And uh, now it's on every single thing possible. I don't think you can hold an Mm -hmm. axe if you're not wearing buffalo plaid. (laughs) It's also on like dog beds. And I feel like it's a big part of like Christmas pajamas for the whole family and slippers uh, wrapping paper even get like a cake that's buffalo plaid or something oh, I'm sure. wow yeah. yeah yeah it definitely had a really huge moment for a couple of years there where it was cool it was that like post-metal era mm-hmm. when dudes were all turning into lumberjacks you know and now it's like so mass that i think it's lost its meaning <laughs> i mean obviously it had lost its meaning anyway because <laughs> Definitely no one knew this story until now. No, it is. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, um, I mean, anything you look into can have like a historical, everything has a historical context down to the smallest minute things. But, mm-hmm. you know, that one's almost on the surface. And you, if you actually read a lot of those things, you just kind of know. Now we know how unethical a lot of, a lot of like the twists and turn in fashion take. And that's all mm-hmm. through, you know, you're talking about these tartans then that were machine made and this is post-industrial revolution. So the sweatshops have begun. Like this is mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. the sweatshops over in Europe. They could you know, they couldn't produce enough of these tartans. They still can't produce enough of these tartans, you know? No, not for no. all the dog beds. No. All the dogs need beds, you know? They need beds. Oh yeah. They, you need to pick it up at home goods and <laughs> maybe get a buffalo plaid frame. I don't know. I have a buffalo. Definitely some throw pillows. <laughs> oh no, Maggie has a buffalo plaid dog bed. She got I don't know where it came from, but it's it's in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you just all these things are so insidious; they just creep up on you like that. Yeah, it's true. I'm gonna like dig through my house after this is over and see where we ha- our hidden family buffalo plaid is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know. The recurring theme, which we haven't done an episode about this because it's a lot to unpack and it's going to take a lot of research for me, is that fashion, both fast fashion and what we think of as like the more high end fashion, both have their roots in colonization, right? It's all about colonizing countries and stealing their culture and art, you know, Mm -hmm. amongst other things. And these are just two really good examples. I mean, I think that people think of Buffalo Plaid as this like all American print. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. Totally. For sure. So, you know, sorry for all the Buffalo Plaid aficionados out there. Sorry to all the Scottish people, because I think both of our partners were very uh, displeased with this information as well. Yeah, they were happy. <laughs> sorry, Dustin and Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that brings us to like, okay, so 
fashion is shitty. We've talked about this a lot. <laughs> what is fast fashion? Because we talk about it all the time, like I said, and we've never really spelled it out. Well, according to the dictionary, I always loved when in like middle school when someone would give a report <laughs> and they would start with like, Webster's defines yeah. fashion as, you know, <laughs> the yeah. anyway. So according to the dictionary, fast fashion is inexpensive clothing produced rapidly by mass market retailers in response to the latest trends. There's some, there's a few things there that I'm like, yes, 100% true. I think produced rapidly, mass market retailers, latest trends. Those are three like things we should hold on to here. Fashion revolution, which is like totally, you know, pushing it back against fast fashion in every way right now. Mm-hmm. And that's their entire mission says it's the glo- that the globalized market for fa- fashion manufacturing has facilitated a fast fashion phenomenon, which is cheap clothing with quick turnover that encourages repurchasing. And that whole quick turnover and repurchasing concept, we're going to talk about a lot today because uh, we all have experience with that in a lot of different ways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that sometimes cheap throwing cheap in there or inexpensive can be a red herring. Like some of it is 100% cheap, you know, Forever 21, H&M, Shein, but not all of it is. And I think it tricks customers into believing that something is fast fashion, into not believing that something is fast fashion when it is. Like Banana Republic is fast fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of expensive, right? I mean, you don't put it in the same price point as Forever 21 and they're totally different customers, but it's mass produced, very quickly, high margin. The idea is that you're going to buy more and more of it. So, I mean, I've never actually bought anything at Banana Republic in my whole life. I have to be honest, but I know what what they have. I know people who work there and I know the kind of profit they make off of everything they sell. My problem with like the, that idea of the retail price, like which retail price, once again, is like what the customer pays it has very little to do with whether or not the brand is fast fashion, um, especially now and in the past few years, because so much stuff is sold at a discount, like promos, clearance events that a much higher margin is baked in up front. So the product was still cheap to make, but it might have a higher price point because the brand is anticipating that they will rarely sell it at full price. Now, I don't know. Did they do they do like Black Friday sales at H and M? Oh yes. Do they like doorbustery kind of stuff? Or okay. so I mean, I've I worked I started working there in two thousand seven, um, okay. which was kind of when it was around the time when they were still a little bit more obscure in America. Um, they had already been around for a long time in European countries, but basically they they came into America with like this grand plan to blow everyone out of the water with black friday um great yeah i used so i used to do a lot of store openings all over the country uh as well as uh worked in pretty much every store in michigan at the time and whenever we either opened a store or we had black friday we would do this thing where we had scratch off tickets like literally like lottery Uh, and the first you know 100 people 50 people depending on the market Sometimes I think 150, 200 people in line would get a scratch off ticket. And so everyone would get at least, I think it was $10 off, but there were all, they gave out such a ridiculous amount of tickets that were $500 tickets, uh, $200 tickets. So all of these people would wait in line and our first couple hours of Black Friday would be ringing up 
just, you know, we had all these deals. We would have um, like the doorbusters. I think they got on doorbusters a little bit later, but we had just ridiculous amounts of deals that we would have to merchandise to the front of the store, the front of the department. And people would come in and just grab armfuls of these deals, bring them to the counter, and we would spend hours ringing them up, just like just these long lines. And then at the end, scan their little lottery ticket, and it's a $0 sale. Or like they owe $4 or something like that. So they really came into America with that. Uh, yeah, guns blazing, man. Yeah, with that Black Friday taste in their mouth, I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know... When you're the customer, you're like, wow, look at me. I just got all this stuff for free. I really, you know, stuck it to the man here mm -hmm. at H&M. But the reality is that, like, those deals are planned into their sales plan. So they know they're going to sell to certain – certain people are going to come in and get $500 worth of stuff for free. And you know what? They baked that in from the very beginning by taking a higher markup in the first place. So basically when you get that $500 worth of free clothing, which at H&M must like require like a, a wheelbarrow to take it out. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it I was can't even imagine. these giant bags that we had, like our biggest bag, it would just be people leaving with armloads. And, you know, while maybe at the, you know, um, the level, like you were on the other side, basically, I was always in a store. And so like at the store level, well, yes, the company understands that they've like baked that, that uh, discount into the price on a store level as a manager, we still had to hit these ridiculous sales numbers, um, regardless of the fact that we were essentially handing out free clothing. And so on the, oh, no, level, totally. the lowest level, you know, we're already suffering, we're giving away all this stuff for free, but we're also as a manager, as I got higher up looking at, you know, these items leaving the store and just thinking, you know, my people are being worked to death right now. They're all miserable, mm -hmm. but I am still about to be cussed out on this, <laughs> on this district call for not hitting these numbers. If I, we would, you know, track to the hour, um, sales per hour. And so Black Friday, you're just, you're back there checking out your sales on the computer and just trying to get, you know, anyone to, to buy all this bullshit that they don't need so that <laughs> yeah. you're not going to get in trouble for your sales per hour, basically, because at the, right. at the lowest store level, that's, you know, the, I, I feel like everyone gets, um, you know, the the ire of the the upper, you know, their bosses. But on a store level, it's just like you see every bit of the madness that is fast fashion, especially on those days. Oh, no, totally. The store that I worked in, we opened at midnight on Black Friday. And it was like, I don't I think I want to say it was like additional 50 percent off markdowns. Uh -huh. And then there'd be some other stuff, but that was like the big thing. And so we would for like, I was a store merchandiser for like a week in advance, we would be just like hanging up rolling racks and rolling racks and rolling racks of sales stuff and like storing it in the back. And then, you know, I would come in at like 10 PM on Thanksgiving to roll it all out mm -hmm. and set it up and sign it. And people would wait in line outside. And the people who came at midnight on Black Friday shopping were like kind of the worst people ever. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. like oh, yeah. so stressful. Everybody was really angry, being like really rude to everyone who worked there. There were like 9,000 spilled Frappuccinos everywhere, <laughs> you know, and like just everybody being mad that they have to wait in line, that we can't find their size. I'm like, well, we kind of have like 100 people shopping in here right now. We can't find your size, like just is what it is. And I remember our district manager calling us like every hour yeah, to yep. be like, yep. Where are you? Where are you now? How about now? How about now? What are you going to do? And it's kind of like, I don't 
know what to do. Do you want me to send someone downtown and have them like start driving people up here? Like what, <laughs> what do you want us to do? Well, that, it's like you, what you have going on. So it's not as if like you're saying, you know, all the, all the people that show, especially, I think it's died out, but all of the people that would show up for those early openings, like I've done the midnight openings or done um, even like the night before openings, those sort of things. Uh, those shoppers have no interest in treating anyone with respect. It's almost like that uh, brief period of time, probably in like 2015, maybe a little bit earlier where everyone was really into sharing um, videos of like fights on Black Friday. And, <laughs> yeah, that, that stuff is real. Yeah. And so while, you know, most of those videos may have been Walmart over some sort of cheap toaster oven, um, we did this, one of the stores I worked at, we did have this huge fist fight between this group of girls, like teenage girls, where they, <laughs> I don't think they were even fighting over the clothing. They were fighting over, I believe there was some sort of boy involved, but um, it was in the midst of all this crazy Black Friday, you know, shopping and all these people grabbing all these deals that are $5, the door busters, and they're just punching each other. And we have all these empty fixtures because everything's been bought because it's all five dollars everyone's grabbed it and so they're just like fist fighting in the midst of all of these empty fixtures which if you work in retail you know they can be very dangerous everyone's gotten like a bruised butt or a black eye or something from a a spigot that hits you in the face they're just punching each other into these stands that have these pointy pieces on them and it's like that sort of thing and you're dealing with these people who are trying to get all these deals and they're mad that you're sold out they're mad that this coupon can't be used you know on Black Friday for these deals that are already marked from $35 to $5. So you've got all of this going on. And then you get a phone call from a district team member saying, well, you're not really, you know, you're uh, down about 20% to last year. And you're like, I have to go. I have to call the police or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you spend easily a month preparing for this one day like you have to the store manager is like reworking the schedule like has to submit the schedule draft Mm -hmm. to the district manager to make sure the coverage is right and like and plan all the food and the all the yeah breaks and all the you got to make the break schedule yeah in different departments all that kind of stuff and actually in reality um you're doing that sort of stuff maybe a month out but a month out now well, I haven't been in fast fashion for a few years, but even, you know, five years ago when I was a store manager, your Black Friday starts now in October. Oh, 100%. I mean, I mean, in general, the sales start in October now, too. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's all blends so, together. <laughs> right. And so in order to make up for all these fake deals that we're getting, the stuff has to be cheaper to make, but be priced at the same point. So mm. that's why it's a little hard to judge if something's fast fashion by how much it costs you. And like this culture of deals is so out of control. Like I always think of Kohl's as like the sketchiest place you can ever (laughs) shop. And I can assure you all the clothes at Kohl's are fast fashion. Yes. I mean, they have like, everything is always like 50% off the regular price anyway. And then they have like Kohl's cash Mm -hmm. and random other sales and promos. And I've seen them give out scratch tickets and, Basically, everything is on sale in one way or another all the time, except for like the one thing that you had to go there to get, like a blender, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or just like yeah. a black pair of pants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You like, forget it. That's never, that's always full price. But like these Vera Wang light gray knee high faux leather boots are definitely 50% off, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> silly so and there are all these other discounts that we take for granted that retailers like now in the era of like 
online shopping have to take into account too. So once again, this drives the costs down, but pushes the retail prices up. So like when you sign up for someone's email list and you get that discount code, which everyone does, right? Yeah. They do it in line all the time too. Yeah, for sure. Well, if, for if, sure. You're one of the, if, you, if there's anyone here still shopping fast fashion, just sign up for the email before you get in the line, please. Oh, yeah. And for like, please, for the love of God, do not ever pay full price for anything because no. it's, it's not worth it. The real cost of making that garment is probably about 20% of what you're paying for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So other discounts like are like these internet coupon codes from places like Retail Me Not and like cashback coupon offers with Rakuten and Honey. And in those situations, uh, I urge you to use them, by the way, because you can, if you're going to buy fast fashion, get a deal. The retailer pays these websites for this partnership and then also, you know, so they're losing money there and then they lose money to you with the discount. So they also have to push up retail prices to like cover that. We would literally have meetings in places I worked where like, okay, well, the Retail Me Not partnership is finally going live this week. Like hopefully this is going to drive a bunch of sales. And I don't know if it really ever did, but that's why those sites exist and that's how they made make money. It's not just some avid deal hunter who's like doing a good deed for the world no it's definitely <laughs> like a, i mean it's like a huge scheme yeah we even had a problem um h&m was not an early adopter of retail me not however we would get you know if you look at something like retail me not it looks like a fake website like it looks like mm-hmm. a weird spammy thing and so we would it does it's terrible yeah i think it was about we battled them for i think a year maybe almost two years where people would bring in fake retail me not coupons and eventually you know we would always say they'd say don't honor them don't honor them we don't do that and then all of a sudden one day oh okay we take retail me not now and it was, <laughs> of course. It was the weirdest course. we're like wait is that even a real website you know i know when i first heard about it i thought it was like a weird like extreme couponer thing that someone was just some like you know, Midwestern mom was running out of her garage or something. And so it was really shocking to me. I think we may have done some deals with them at Mod Cloth. And I was like, wait, this is a real business. (laughs) Wow. I had no idea. It doesn't look like it. No, they're doing a really good job. Um, Another thing that like pushes our prices up and the cost down is free shipping, which we've talked about before. Like someone has to pay for that. It doesn't, UPS isn't like, no, no, it's cool. I'll just do it for free. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then another one that I think that sometimes people forget about is employee discounts and like friends and family offers. Mm -hmm. Now I worked for a pretty big corporation Uh, that had several fast fashion brands under its umbrella. And they would have these like employee appreciation times when you could get an extra discount with your discount. Mm -hmm. And these things would literally be planned around like pay periods to make sure everyone just got paid when it started. And when sales were not meeting expectation, like maybe they're hitting the end of the quarter and we weren't hitting our numbers, they would just throw in an extra employee appreciation event just to boost that. Like that's how much employee stuff is being sold oh yeah and i believe it i mean if you look at um any any retailer whether it's fast fashion or you know going under the guise of being something higher they get you to buy into the whole branding the lifestyle they want you to look Mm -hmm. like you work there whether or not you have to is you know dependent on the company but generally people start to just you know you're there all the time you live your mm-hmm, life. If you work mm-hmm. in retail, you live your life in a damn mall or well, you're in the store. Most of the years that you worked at H&M, I had a card 
that I had to carry in my wallet and I would get 20% yeah. off. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. but there would it would be like for six months or something. But it is genius to tap into the market of, you know, your your family members, your friends. It's like it gets it gets those people to almost feel like they're supporting you in some way, which is definitely not the case. But it, I think it, you know, they kind of work it in there with, oh, friends and family discount that sort of thing. Right, right. And I reached a point, you know, when I was like a store merchandiser where I would be very concerned about us meeting our sales plan Mm -hmm. because I wasn't going to get a bonus or maybe a promotion or, I mean, a raise. Or you just even have to deal with listening to any any of the, like, feedback on, you know, your job. Totally. Getting lectured, you know, like having to like have a meeting about my performance because we hadn't met our sales target. And so I would literally be on Facebook like, hey, we're having a big sale. Please come, please come. You know, like, like it is interesting. And when you're in, you're working in a store, the amount of clothes you end up buying is insane. And when I look back at like how fast fashion moved into my life and I became suddenly someone who bought clothes all the time, Mm -hmm. it was definitely started when I was working in a store. Oh yeah. Definitely. Cause it was just there all the time. You feel frantic because all oh, this, now we have sale and we get a discount on sale. So I've got to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And what I have is out of style now already, mm-hmm. even though we just came in a month ago where it's already fallen apart. That's what I was going to say. That's I've been if, wearing it to work. if you work in fast fashion and you wear the clothing, you have to buy the clothing all the time because it doesn't withstand working in fast fashion. <laughs> like including while you're working, yeah. something you're wearing oh, might fall apart. Yeah. yeah. I remember when um, oh, yeah. my store manager, um, when I was a visual merchandiser, I had to run into the fitting room because the button and the zipper had busted on a pair of pants that I wore. And oh. I had to, I was like, can you bring the, get the, desensor them, bring them to me and I will pay you when I walk out because I am about to expose my ass to the whole store. Totally. I mean, I remember once being in the office, the manager's office and the store manager stapling my dress back yep. together. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so I can make it through the rest of the day. Lots of staple repairs I had a a store manager she would always have she was really tiny and the pants were too big so uh she would always have me staple the pants down so that they fit her oh my gosh staples there you go guys repair on the go if you haven't had to repair your clothes with a stapler you haven't lived life yet oh yeah the the seamstress sitting next to me is just cringing inside right now (laughs) I know I know it makes more problems for sure so another discount is just that like I haven't worked anywhere that has this, but I see it a lot is like when you sign up for this credit card and you get 20% off. It's like those things are everywhere right now. And like, once again, they have to pay for that. They pay for that by raising retails, reducing costs. I mean, it's like, why do I want an Ulta credit card? Literally, how is that useful Mm -hmm. to me? (laughs) No, it's like another predatory credit scam. Yeah, yeah. They're all scams. So, okay. So we're already saying like, you can't really tell if it's fast fashion by price. I hope that everybody is getting that now. So that said, there are lots of really clear identifying attributes of fast fashion. So one of these, and I know Katie, you're going to like feel this one too, because I know where you worked. (laughs) Are new styles coming every week or even every day? Because I worked in a store where we received a shipment of new stuff five days a week. Like, a truck pulled up and we all had to go outside and carry boxes in. It would be like 20, 40, 50, 100 boxes of new product. Oh, yeah. Monday through Friday. Yeah, we would get 
Uh, I mean, I worked in smaller volume stores compared to bigger cities, but, um, you know, we'd get 150 to like, what, like 200 totes that we would have to process. We'd get it three times a week. And it's, you know, you have a whole team pulling these clo- this clothing out of the totes, putting it on the table, and you have these processes to try and meet these efficiency standards. It's just mm-hmm, third amount mm-hmm. of clothing. Oh, yeah. Maggie also, totally. uh, well, I worked at Forever 21 <laughs> for so how many boxes were you guys getting? <laughs> on the time of year, but it could be uh-huh. anywhere from like some days it would be like 10 boxes up to like 150. And during holiday, we got boxes seven days a week. Oh, It got to the point where we had so many boxes in our back room, which was very small, that they were... Which was also your break room. Which was also it? our break room yeah. and where our bathroom was. Great. And they were awesome. And we had, for some reason, we had like an excessive amount of pregnant sales associates. They could not get in the back room to the bathroom because the doorway was narrowed by all these boxes piled up. So they had to go out into the mall to use the bathroom. Oh my God, stop. That is crazy. I mean, so for me, and I don't know if the two of you had this experience as well. Like, so I worked like in stores, in retail, I would say about like five years cumulatively. And I noticed this difference where like in the beginning, it felt like we generally had enough payroll as in like enough people working to get that shipment out on the floor. But with each passing year, our payroll was pulled back more and more. And it reached this point where like when I was a store merchandiser, where we would have just a hundred boxes of shipment and receiving at all times that we could never stay on top of it. And we, I don't know if you guys had to do this, but we would have to put those security tags on it too, which would slow everything down. So you have to like take the clothes out of the box, take off all the poly bags. Sometimes they'd be on plastic hangers. Sometimes like if it was like Levi's or something, there would be vendor tags on there that we had to cut off because we weren't allowed to have any other branded tags on our stuff. And then we'd have to put on all the security tags and then it would go to the fitting rooms and someone would either hang it or fold it. And it was just like, I would stay late for four five, six hours every night just to tag this product, like off the clock, you know, cause I was oh, yeah. salaried. So it was like, if it didn't get out, I was going to hear about it. And it was like, so stressful. Every time that truck pulled up, we would be like, please let it only be 10 boxes today and not a hundred. <laughs> oh yeah. We had, I mean, um, okay. So one of my big projects that I took on as a store manager was essentially this, um, logistics project. It was, we were one of the first 20 stores, uh, in the country to adopt this new way of working. And they had okay. the most specific to, I would say the second, um, ways of processing stock, the ways of processing like a, a order at the cash point, um, the way that the fitting room worked. Everything was so specific. You had to follow these very rigid rules. And even mm-hmm. within that, you know, we, we would get our numbers ahead of time for our truck and we would make these um, plans that were to the minute, color coded to the part, like every person was working in a different you know, we knew what department this was. They'd have all the kids done. They'd have the men's done. Um, if there's anyone from H&M listening to this, they're probably like having a slight panic attack thinking about it right now. But, uh, <laughs> it was such a, I mean, they put so much money into this program and it was efficient, but at the same time, one little wrench thrown into the system could throw the whole thing off. And so I think that's like when you're working at the pace of fast fashion, one little thing can throw off on a store level how things go. So like we had a problem, this was at the end of my career there and it kind of 
Um, I have nightmares about it still. We had this period of time where we ran out of hangers in the U.S. Oh, my God. Okay. I've had this experience, too. (laughs) I mean, especially when you. So we were never allowed to leave the stock room with uh, we called it rollover. If we had it, we would have to report it. And it was just, you know, you never wanted to be the store manager or the department manager or the supervisor, any of these roles, you never wanted to be the one that had to call and say, you know, we have 20 totes of rollover, but there was a period of time. It was months where we just had no hangers. And so you have to sell, you know, we would save the hangers. You have to sell the items to get the hangers, take the hangers back, reuse them. And so, you know, if your sales are down and there are no hangers being shipped to anyone, you have nowhere to put these clothes. And so we would, you know, every table, they would call us and say, just do all folds on the table, just fold everything. And it was just, it got comical at some point. I mean, even in my exit interview, um, I talked a lot about it because the way that you were treated on a store level was as, was as if you were so, doing something so heinous by having all this merchandise in the back, because you know that that merchandise is on a timer. The second you open that mm-hmm. box, if you don't sell that as fast as possible, no one wants it in three months. And so, I mean, that I would say even in 30 yeah, days yeah. like that. I mean, I think that's really telling. Depending yeah. on the, the department. Yeah. So it's, you know, we always said things have an expiration date. And so if you, it was like the worst offense to have things mm-hmm. back there in that stack room. And you know, dealing with something like, I mean, the stress levels across the whole district when that hangar shortage were going on were ridiculous. And looking back on it, I can laugh because, oh, haha, you know, we didn't have hangers. That's so stupid. But at the time I was just going, I was staying after work for hours. I was dissociating at work. I would lose time. I would get home and just be like, you know, I have to go to bed right now because I can't think about these stupid rollover totes in the back for one more minute. Yeah, because it's just the speed that this product is coming. And God forbid, which I know this has been a major issue at H&M for the past few years, God forbid the sales plan is extremely unachievable because the amount of product you're going to end up yeah. with just backing up is is insane. Ecom retailers kind of have a similar situation uh, where they launch new product at least once a week, others every day. Uh, when I worked at ModCloth, we launched product every day. I want to say at noon, our customer expected it, that we would launch new stuff every single day. Oh and so God. we ended up with a lot of stuff, you know, <laughs> like, and if it's a warehouse, it's more like figurative stuff because you can't see it. You don't have to make it into a concept on the floor. You know, the customer is not going to see it. So you can kind mm-hmm. of expand as much as you want. But when you start translating all those new styles to the store, which was is what happens at places like H&M or Forever 21, I mean, the amount of styles I see in a Forever 21 store never cease to blow my mind. Like, <laughs> I just can't, I can't even believe it. I mean, Zara is pretty similar that way too. There's just so much stuff in there. You know, I would ask like yourself, if you go into a store and they have, I don't know, a thousand different items in there, thousands even it's it's definitely fast fashion no matter what the price tickets say you know like go into a boutique do they have a thousand different things for sale in there no 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 right and then and then the trends i mean maggie would always laugh about uh like the trends that they had at forever 21 (laughs) like you want to well they have i mean there is no no organization in the store other than that every six weeks they send down this like reset where everybody has to stay overnight 
and reset the entire store, reorganize it. But it wasn't organized to begin with <laughs> because I mean, there's just like, there's no plan to get everything processed. It's just like whatever anyone can get out of a box while they're also doing all of their other tasks mm -hmm. is what will end up on the floor. Right. But so they would have these resets where we had like, 10 different girls that the store would have to be organized into. And then it would be all these like crazy trends that had to be like crammed into each section. Oh. And like, it didn't necessarily make any sense. But then also the sales associates who worked, you know, like 10 hours a week yeah. had to memorize this every six weeks to try and get things back into the right place after people try them on. In oh the yeah. Room. Doing go back in a store like care. that is a oh. nightmare. I, I mean, once even... had 79 racks of go-backs <laughs> oh. that I had to personally do because I was the only visual left in what was that, like a 20,000 square foot <laughs> store. The store and I was the only one who knew where anything was. I spent an entire week, five days, Just, doing go-backs. And I didn't make a gent because people were still trying things I know. Out. That's a thing because, you know, especially if you go to a place like Forever 21, you take like 20 things in the fitting room. Yeah. And none, none of them, them fit. fit. So then they all go back. And I think <laughs> there's no such thing as a garment that fits at Forever like, 21. I worked no. enough retail to be pretty low maintenance when I go shopping, but we all know that person. We've both personally and professionally who thinks that everybody who works in a store is there to make them happy. Like they have that, like the customer is always right disease. That person, I, oh, yeah. I, I had a friend who I was at Forever 21 with who kept asking people where stuff was and if they could get her another size. And I finally had to like intervene and be like, that doesn't happen here. Okay. <laughs> you, are, you are not. They don't, they don't where know it where it is. It, is. <laughs> no one knows it might. There's not a person on earth who knows where it is. <laughs> yeah. It, it might be here. It might not go find it on the website and order it. Like seriously. It may have never even been, you know, sent to the store in that size. So I don't know. It's or so it could be in the inventory, but it's sitting in a box in the back room. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Or it could have been stolen and they don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know. I know um, one of the phrases that anyone who works in retail, even currently at a place where um like at my current place of employment we do handwritten receipts and we have a cash register from 19 i think 1945 um people will say well can't you just check in the computer <laughs> like everyone in retail <laughs> hates that fucking phrase my god <laughs> no i can't not <laughs> i can't even tell you if it's on sale actually and i feel like there was this time like i don't know maybe between 2005 and 2010 where like certain retailers had more technology than others. Like yeah. it seems yeah. like Gap was really able to say like, this is where it is. Or do you want me to order it from the website for you? But like where I worked, mm -hmm. we didn't have that. And customers would be inf infuriated. And the only way you oh, could, the only way you could find out if another store had a size was to write down the SKU and then go back to the manager's office and look it up on the computer there. And then you would have to call and be on hold and they, and be like, can you find this in a small and size small blue here's the long skew and then be on hold while they mm -hmm. look for it and then maybe they would have it and then you'd have to get the customer on the phone so they could do a charge sent <laughs> it's just yeah. like yeah. Oh, yeah. so oh, absurd yeah, i mean that's what we i mean i do it now all the time i call a day but i call to another one other store and we have you know a certain set of styles but calling at H&M, if you had a long line of people and oh. someone said, can you call if they have this at this 12 Oaks or at Briarwood, or I don't really care. I'll drive to three different stores. Can you just call and see if they have it? And you're like, well, let me pause everyone else in line for you. 
so that I can call the store and describe the item. And we had, you know, like an order number is what we called it. And so, you know, there's, it's just, people think that point of sale systems are these very sophisticated. <laughs> I mean, ours was like black and green. It was like from the yeah. 80s, yeah. you know? <laughs> it's just like, it's not a computer you would ever recognize. People who, no, you know, no. are on like a nice MacBook expect us to have the same thing. And it's like, no, this is like, this is software that was specifically designed for this company and they didn't want to put a lot of money into it. And so therefore I can look up nothing for right, you. Right, right. Hopefully it rings up on sale because hopefully I've gone in the back and put in all of the right order numbers <laughs> to make sure that it shows up on sale in the front. Right, right. Thank you to Katie and Maggie for being our first ever sister guests and seriously, like the most prepared guests I've had on the show so far. They will be back in the next episode, like I said, where we'll continue the conversation about fast fashion and it's real soapy. So get ready. (laughs) I know this was a weird point to end the conversation for this episode. And it's kind of one of my pet peeves on other podcasts, but I just could not find an easy spot. And it was just such a long session. So I apologize. I really think about this stuff a lot. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I don't know, maybe you want to consider subscribing. Also, please tell a friend. Personally, I value a podcast recommendation from a friend or a coworker way more than any algorithm suggestions. And thank you to everyone who's been sharing our content, sending nice messages, leaving reviews. Like, you are the best. This is the fuel that keeps me going. (laughs) I mean, it means so much to me. Do you have an episode suggestion, a burning question? Just want to say hi or share a story of your own? Get some advice? You can either email me at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at closehorsepodcast. And just a reminder, I'm in the process of moving right now, but in a few weeks, I will be settled in in my new home in Lancaster County. And that's when I'm going to get down to work on our directory of ethical, sustainable brands, businesses, vintage sellers, slow fashion designers, you name it. If you want to be involved and included in this directory, please drop me a line. And don't forget, if you love listening to me talk, then you should check out my other podcast, The Department. It's way different than Close Horse. I co-host it with Kim, who you might remember from our e-commerce episodes. And we talk about trends, taste, weird stuff from our lives, things we're obsessing about, have obsessed about, all everything, you name it. Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. He got a very sick haircut from our friend Kelly at Namesake this week. If you see him, tell him he looks great. And if you're in Philly or near it, Make an appointment with Kelly. Once again, it's at namesake.studio on Instagram because she's super rad and talented and her studio is the most stunning salon space I've ever visited. Okay, bye. Bye.